the Podfix Network. Welcome to the show, everyone. Despite what you may think, there are intelligent people living in Florida. And before we begin today, I'd like to introduce you to both of them. First is a friend of mine, an avid bird watcher, and a man who, if you need him to, can park a large truck between two other large trucks. Please welcome that illustrator guy, Phil Rude. I can do that, and I did that today. The bird watching part or the parking the truck part? A little bit of both. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. There, I, I do both every day. Um, just in the course of my, my, uh, my every day, I guess. Cool. Yeah, Phil is a Renaissance man. For those that don't already know that. Well, that implies that I'm awesome at everything. I just do a lot of things. Um, <laughs> the quality of which is debatable. Well, one of the things you do is guest on this show, and we're glad to have you back. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Toph. Yeah. All right. So that other voice that you briefly heard, he's our next guest. He is a podcast host two times over. He's also a dedicated child advocate, particularly when they're being attacked by washed-up, self-important pro bowlers. That's right. It's my pal, <laughs> Elimination Paul Chomo. <laughs> I was so, so worried where you were going for, with that for a minute. It's like, oh, no. What's happening? One and a half podcasts. No, 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 sir. I'm not going to allow you to minimize your second podcast. Oh, Nor will I. Okay. That's sweet of you. Thank you. One Star Review Theater it makes it a full-on po- podcast, Paul. <laughs> Take credit for that. Oh, see, I was going to say the boating reports is what really takes it I love the, the boating reports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the second show that we're referencing is called Checking With Chomo, and I'm going to say that I didn't know that I needed boating reports until I heard that podcast. (laughs) Neither did I. I don't even own a boat. Right. I don't either, but I definitely need boating forecasts, and now I know where to go to get them. Yeah. The next frontier, the the next thing I'm going to do, and don't don't steal my idea, anybody listening to this, is I'm going to start working in uh, readings from the label on a bottle of Dr. Bronner's soap. Into the podcast somewhere. Yes. So I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I think this uh, the fiber guy that I'm getting ready to talk to is going to get a little taste. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, in any case, thank you both for being here again. Thank you for having me. Today, we continue our journey to help me identify my all-time favorite song. The journey comes in the form of a massive four-stage mega-tournament. Each of the four stages is its own 64-song tournament divided loosely by decade and type of music. Listeners can follow along and participate by voting in a series of polls in the Gravity Beard Interns Facebook group. On the first episode, we discussed Stage 1, songs of the 60s and 70s. Today, we're going to cover Stage 2, songs from the kind of late 70s to early 90s. We'll begin by discussing each of your picks. Then we'll go over the results from the interns at large, and we'll finish up by discussing my final four, and I'll reveal my winner from this stage. Gentlemen, are you ready? Ready. I'm ready. Great. Phil, why don't you begin? I would love to begin, and I want to begin with a a quote here that describes my state of mind when I was done with my brackets. (laughs) 
We are through the looking glass, people. White is black, and black is white. And that is Kevin Costner as Jim Garrison in the Oliver Stone fan fiction JFK. My mind was melted, and I did not know reality by the time I got comparing, got done comparing <laughs> all the songs in these brackets. They are so incredibly different, I didn't even know how to begin stacking them up next to each other. Paul, did you have a similar experience? Oh, yeah. This this felt like walking into Camelot music and just having people throw every record at me all at once. Yes! <laughs> That's a great metaphor for that. Boy, it is. It just covered such a wide, a wide time span and a wide variety of genres. It was almost overwhelming to, to like, like Phil said, it was hard to choose in a lot of cases. It's what the time period was. It was, um, I, I think we talked about this a little, maybe in the group about how music kind of fragmented in the eighties and, and it got a lot more niche and everybody just sort of found their niches in it. And a lot of stuff passed me by and I didn't realize how much did until, uh, until I sort of rediscovered, I, I com- straight up discovered a couple songs I'm going to talk about. Um, and then rediscovered like how great the Indigo Girls are and things like mm-hmm. that. You know, like it's, it's stuff that it just kind of, I'd been aware of it maybe or, or was completely unaware of some of it. Uh, some of it I, came to realize how much I really didn't enjoy it. And that's why I avoided it back then. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was a really interesting experience seeing that wide a range of music. Well, I'm glad you said that because one of my intentions for this was to, I mean, I've used the word journey and that's what I wanted it to be. And um, that's why I wanted you guys to come along on this and we want to do it in the group. And I think the people that are going to enjoy this process the most are the ones that take a little bit of extra time and not make quick decisions, but actually look into stuff a little more deeply that they've never explored. And so I'm I'm glad that you guys are doing that. It is a journey and there is no journey on this list, (laughs) uh, which is a little bizarre, but well, it is what it is. I think we're better for it. I think, I think we're fine without open arms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the journey is not included on purpose. That is not an accident. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump in and get started. All right. Um, the first two of my final four I had from group four, I had the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead by XTC. And from group two, I had Tightrope by Stevie Ray Vaughan, which I felt like I kind of had to put that through because I've been a Stevie Ray fan for so long. And, um, not to diss on tightrope. It's a great song. Uh, but there's, I have kind of more favorite Stevie Ray songs that might've gone the distance. That's the two of my final four that, uh, that got eliminated. And those were tough choices as well. Uh, but I want to talk about my two finalists that made it to the final round. And, uh, the first of those is this song right here. This is Dear Madam Barnum by XTC. Did you know much about them before this? I did not. I was uh, going to lead with the fact that I really was not familiar with XTC at all going into this leg of the tournament. Well, that's really interesting because two XTC songs made your final your final four out of sixty four songs. 
Yeah, and we uh, we've talked about discovering new music through doing this, and and it's one of those things where you had them both uh, from this album. Uh, this is the 1992 album Non Such. This is I was shocked to see their 12th studio album. <laughs> Um, Isn't that amazing? That is, they that were is so an prolific. extensive catalog. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I did. I was not familiar with them. I I had heard of them, um, but just had never really listened to them. Uh, Battle of Peter Pumpkinhead, which was the other one in my final four. I realized I had heard a cover of that. The Dumb and Dumber soundtrack has a has a cover of the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. Uh, that I had heard, but I hadn't heard the original. Yeah, by the Crash Test Dummies. Crash Test Dummies, yeah. But yeah, uh, it was really cool to discover that, and I, I've since listened to um, the whole album. Uh, so uh, that's a big thanks to you, Toph, for introducing me to uh, a band that I'm going to do a deeper dive into. I, I've, I really enjoyed listening to that album and these two songs in particular. You're really going to enjoy the the journey to the rest of their catalog. But a little bit about the song. It was written for an Australian movie called The Crossing, starring Russell Crowe uh, from 1990. But ultimately, it did not make the cut. It did not make the movie, and it wasn't used. But the movie takes place in 1965, so they wanted it to sound like a song from 1965. And I think it does that um, almost perfectly. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. The, uh, the, there's like background harmonies in there. It sounds, you know, there's hand clapping. There's all this, uh, kind of old timey stuff. I wouldn't say it sounds exactly like a song from 1965, but it does sound influenced by that, that era. They said they wanted a real straight backbeat. Um, and Andy Partridge, the, the guitarist and singer asked that the drummer, uh, quote, put a little skip and drag in there that fell somewhere between dotted time and straight time. So there's that, there is like a real steady, uh, foundation to this song, but there's also a little bit of swing to it. There's a little bit, uh, they linger on like, uh, some of those, some of those beats, just to, like a dotted quarter. I don't want to get into talking sheet music and be a total nerd about this, but. Uh, the, it, there's just something about the beat that it kind of swings just enough and it still sounds really steady and solid all the way through. Uh, the song did not chart, but the album hit number 28 on the UK albums chart. Number 97 on the US Billboard Top 200. It topped Rolling Stone's college album chart. Remember when college radio was a thing, guys? I do. <laughs> and it won the 1993 Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album. Oh wow! Well, I don't. I don't know if I remember that. That's interesting, huh? Uh, yeah, it, it it seems like a really celebrated album, and that made me feel even dumber for not being familiar with it. Because uh, ninety ninety two ninety three. I mean, that was I was in high school. I was reading Rolling Stone magazine at the time. I was checking out all kinds of different music, and this one just passed me by. I mean, you can't you can't get all of the pop culture like you can't be expected to get all of the pop culture all at once. This is not an episode of, you know, the Big Bang Theory. Sometimes things are just going to go go past you and go over your head. You know? <laughs> no, I mean, that is that is true. That's fair. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was a great discovery for me uh, this leg. 
Paul, did you have you any experience with XTC? Senses working overtime. That's it. <laughs> that song only. Yeah. <laughs> I, I only discovered more of their music because of this tournament. Okay. Senses working overtime was that like their only like really big top forty kind of hit. This won a Grammy, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to say no to your question. I, I was busy listening to other things. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Mm-hmm. Tof, you seem like you have a, uh, were you like a, a lifelong XTC fan? No, I, I don't want to give that impression. I, I was aware of their stuff probably starting um, in the late 80s, maybe, as I got into alternative, at least what was called alternative back then. Right. And so I was aware of stuff like Mayor of Simpleton and Dear God and, you know, things like that off of Oranges and Lemons. Um, but I think I really got into them the most when this album, you know, was released. And, and this is probably where I spent the most time. Okay, cool. All right. Um, that wraps that up. My other song that made the final matchup is this one. And this is Promises by Eric Clapton. Uh, this is off the 1978 album Backless. This was Clapton's sixth solo studio album. Uh, it was written by Richard Feldman and Roger Lynn, and it charted number nine on the Billboard US Hot 100 singles chart. It was number six on the adult contemporary chart. It was number 82 on the top country singles chart. Uh, So it kind of was popular all the way around. Uh, Backing vocals on this song are by Marcy Levy, who sang backup on Wonderful Tonight and Lay Down Sally, which she also co-wrote with Eric Clapton. And she would go on. She did background singing for everybody, Bob Seger, Shaka Khan, Aretha Franklin. I mean, all she had a huge career as kind of a studio and backing singer. Uh, but she would go on to form the band Shakespeare's Sister in the early 90s with one of the former members of Bananarama. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, if you don't remember them, they had a song called Stay that was a big uh, high school dance slow song when I was in high school. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I had an awareness of Bananarama, but I've never been familiar with them. They were just around. I couldn't tell you a song they they had, but uh, yeah, I, I just remember them being around. That's exactly what I would say about them. As for Promises, this was a song um, that I first heard when I got the... Uh, the Eric Clapton starter kit that is Time Pieces. Yes. The, the greatest hits album that I think everybody our age got. That's right. That's where I first heard it. I never heard of it. We should have all just bought uh, Slow Hand to start ourselves in <laughs> Clapton, but we we went and bought Time Pieces instead. And this was the one song on side one that I had never heard before. And I remember listening to it and go, oh, this is kind of catchy and it's kind of cool. And then it just kind of became, uh, uh, I don't know if I listed as a totally favorite Clapton song because he's just generally one of my favorites ever. So like my, my love for his catalog is, is, uh, pretty wide. 
Uh, but yeah, uh, is this was one that kind of stood out, and it stood out in this tournament for sure because it's like, oh, promises. That's like that's kind of an underdog Clapton song, you know. This song hits me in a similar way that Different Drum does by Linda Ronstadt, and also the same way that Hello, Hello, Old Friend by Clapton. Yeah, because both of those songs are are pretty distinct from his from his catalog. Is really well known songs. And not that I don't appreciate the hits, but I think over time, even though I got to Clapton late, I've just heard those other popular Clapton songs so many times that it, it uh, I couldn't enjoy them as much. And so when songs like this, just little gems that were just different stylistically than his other, his other stuff that he's well known for, when those popped up, they were really notable to me and they just hit me in a way that it, that was really impactful. So what's interesting though, is that this is the first Clapton song in the entire tournament out of a handful of tries that has made it this far because all the other songs got eliminated pretty early considering it's Clapton and I was I've, I've been surprised by that if you would have asked me once all the choices had shown up I would have told you Lonely Stranger was going to go all the way sure uh, Unplugged is it's a top to bottom great album and Lonely Stranger is a uh, is probably my favorite song on that album well, if listeners want to hear a more complete, a more comprehensive discussion of Clapton and his catalog and his career, we did an episode about the music of 1992, where we discuss um, Unplugged extensively and kind of Clapton's whole story. That's a great album to cover, and it's a great artist to cover. I recently saw a documentary called Eric Clapton, uh, A Life in 12 Bars. Oh, interesting. And, and it's a documentary about kind of his whole life and career. And just how troubled he was and in all these weird turns that it took. And he has a very interesting and troubled life. And uh, in the midst of all that, he made just truckloads of brilliant music. He's a very interesting character in the landscape of music that has meant a lot to me personally. That documentary has got to be fascinating. It's great. Yeah, it's 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 pretty long. It's like a three hour doc, I think. But um if you're into Clapton, it's well worth it, I think. Well, we all watched seven hours of Tiger King, so we can certainly watch three hours of Clapton. <laughs> I think you owe it to yourself to, to watch it. <laughs> you know. It, it seems like it yeah, would be a, ca- a palate cleanser after seven hours of Tiger King. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Somehow still less dysfunctional than Tiger King. <laughs> right. Abundantly less, abundantly less dysfunctional. <laughs> So that's my top two. That's what it came down to is Dear Madam Barnum by XTC versus Promises by Eric Clapton in my championship brackets. And in the end, the song I picked as my favorite from stage two is Promises by Eric Clapton. Nice. I think the answer is probably obvious, but how did you land on Clapton over XTC? It just, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's a song that's been with me longer. I think I just have history with that song. It's a breakup song, but it's not a woe is me breakup song. Everything about this song, I just kind of like, and it's, it's a little more laid back and just sort of a, a familiar chill listen for me. Uh, and I think that just, that just kind of won it out at, in the end. Yeah. It's a really easy listen, isn't it? It's a really easy to listen to breakup song. It's like it's like a bowl of your favorite ice cream. Like it just goes down so easily. 
Mm-hmm. That's it. It's it's the comfort food after a breakup. It's yeah. you listen to this song and you go, <laughs> you know, this still kind of sucks, but I feel a little bit better because I just ate a box of Thin Mints, and, <laughs> and that's and that's okay. Yeah. Now I'm ready to move on. But yeah, ultimately, uh, uh, Promises is, is just a great song. It's one I have a ton of history with, so it it went the distance. Yeah, that makes sense. Great. All right. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Paul, how about yourself? All right. Um, well, uh, my two finalists uh, from Group 4, I had Loser by Beck. Uh, 1993 song. I don't think it gets as much credit as it should for changing music. I think uh, Smells Like Teen, Teen Spirit was 1991, so this was a couple years later, but Beck was just doing something so different and so unique, and here was this little skinny white guy just rapping nonsense and still somehow managing to be cool. I think really had a huge impact on music, and I don't think he gets enough credit for that. And uh, I just want to mention, too, that a guy called Carl Stevenson helped him write that record, Mellow Gold. Carl Stevenson did an album back then called Forest for the Trees. Go check it out. It's one of the weirdest, most wonderful things that you will ever encounter. And the 90s was just not ready for that guy. But that's a whole different thing. So yeah, Loser by Beck. From group three, my finalist was Beautiful Girl by In Excess. This was hard to pick because picking a song from group three for me, was like, it was like picking which fingernail I wanted to have a hangnail on. <laughs> now, what do you mean by that? Well, you, you have this knack for picking artists that I like, but songs from them that I, I generally don't like, you know, they're near the bottom of the list that of the songs that I like from that artist case in point, shiny, happy people. <clears throat> You know, I don't want to get into that too much, but you you heard my <laughs> you heard my complaints about that. And you know, I don't mind shiny happy people. It's it's fine. It's a good song, but it's kind of like if you if you go to a good steakhouse and order chicken fingers off the kids menu. Like I like chicken fingers, but there there was just so many other good choices there on the menu. Oh, where am I going with this? Beautiful girl by NXS one out in that round. And uh, so the first of my two finalists is this song right here. This is a song that came out in 1987. It's called Just Like Heaven, and it's by The Cure. This song, I guess it was inspired by a trip that he took with his wife uh, on a coastline somewhere. Beautiful song. I think it was one of the first songs that ever made me, like, acknowledge that it was beautiful like oh this is a really beautiful song um of course this is probably the the song that made the cure popular in the united states it inspired millions of disaffected 80s youth to walk around shopping malls cosplaying as robert smith (laughs) i always thought they were edward scissorhands same uh, same same thing Robert Smith, Edward Scissorhands. By the way, 2020 <laughs> Robert Smith is still trying to look like 1987 Robert Smith. Yes, he is. And it's it's not working. Yes. That is tragically true. Somebody needs to get a hold of that guy and go, you just, you need to update the look, Robert. It's not, it's not. Uh. He looks like a container that they would sell 1980s Robert Smith. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
He's the embodiment of midlife crisis. Like, just let it go, Robert. It's <laughs> let it done. Go, yeah. Let it go. But you know the the you know if if you're a sophomore in high school like I was in 1987, you're just awkward and self conscious and about everything. You have no self esteem. You're perpetually lovelorn. And so this song is just made for you to just wallow in and feel bad about yourself, but also like it's just a beautiful song. And, you know, there's really I don't think there's any other song like it in the Cures catalog. I think I, I went looking for other songs that were going to be um, just like heaven. And there was a couple more that I liked, but there's really nothing else in the catalog that's quite like that. I still like the Cure, but that song in particular really um, just stuck out to me. I love that song. The other song that made my final matchup is this one. This is called Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic by the Police. It is a 1981 song from the album Ghost in the Machine. It is the first record I ever bought with my own money as a 9 or 10 year old kid. Nice. What an excellent choice. Yeah. I still have the record. I still have the record. The record is warped. I can't play it, but I still have the record. I still have the jacket. I still have all of it, even though I can't use it. Um... So a lot of this is just nostalgia. It was the first record I ever bought. I love the music on it. I liked The Police before that record. I liked The Police after that record. And But this song in particular is just... I, it, it's hard when people... You know, when you ask most people what their favorite song of all time is, people will generally say, oh gosh, I really have a hard time just picking one song. Well, I can pick just one song, and it's this one. <laughs> to your point, Paul... I've taken two years and I'm doing a 250 song, <laughs> six song mega tournament <laughs> to, to determine my favorite song. At the end of it, are you gonna be? Are you gonna land on that song and say this is my favorite song of all time? I'm not gonna commit to that yet. That, that's what I'm endeavoring okay. to do, but I, I'm I'm concerned about that. He has outsourced people to help him <laughs> choose his like, like this may be more effort than anyone's ever put into that question in the history of music ever. This is really a social experiment when you think about it. It really is. <laughs> but yeah, though, this song is just, this. I didn't have to put any effort into this song, and I haven't had to put any effort into that question for several years now. It's There's a, there's a line in the song that says, Do I have to tell the story of a thousand rainy days since we first met? It's a big enough umbrella, but it's always me that ends up getting wet. Which encapsulates my 40 flurf years of life so well <laughs> like who's not felt that way oh sure. my god and i think it was the first record that the police used a lot of keyboards on a lot of piano on like that little piano line in it is is really good and i don't think they ever really did that before this record and uh so i mean spoiler alert in the end the song that i picked as my favorite song from the whole thing was every little thing she does is magic by the police I've heard this song many, many times, obviously. It's it's a very popular song. But I listened very closely to this song. It it is it is so romantic. This is yeah. such a romantic song. The more I've listened to this song because of the, these discussions, it almost brings me to tears. It almost makes me a little bit weepy. Oh yeah. It almost makes me cry. This song has never even come anywhere close to making me cry before until now. 
And and now wow. when I listen closely to the lyrics, because because now I'm married and I've lived a lot more life and I understand relationships in a much more mature way. And so now when I listen closely to the words of this song, it comes close sometimes to bringing me to tears. Yeah. And it's it's hidden in that rhythm. It's hidden in that little upbeat sort of tempo. Yes. And But then when you yes. hear the words, when you listen to the words, and it's about a guy who is in love, desperately in love, and just either can't express it or doesn't know how to express it, and is, he's just frustrated by it. Like that is just that's what I relate to, but it's but it's like it's sneaky. You know, he's an underrated songwriter. I think you know oh, the police totally. have gotten plenty of attention. You know, but but I think the songwriting particularly is very underrated. And this this song, uh, uh, you know, many of their songs, but this song is so poetic. Yeah, it's a way more in- emotional song than I thought, and and it part of it is in the poetry of the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. The police were great. Uh, and, and Sting, for, for the huge solo career he had, he was never cooler than when he was with the police. Like, he was he was a cool guy. They were recruiting him to be in Dune because he was just such a cool guy back then. Um, and, and he was a great songwriter and, and a great bass player and uh, a great singer. I, I, I can't knock anybody picking the police uh, for having a song that that hits him in the gut like that. So that's that's a solid pick, Paul. Thank you. The other thing I, I was going to say is I, I'm nothing more than an amateur musician, but try to play the bass line that he plays while also yeah. being the lead singer for, oh. for the songs that he performs. Try to do that. That's impossible. I've always marveled at that. Yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah, I, I've plunked around on a bass guitar a little bit too, and if you can play bass proficiently and sing at the same time like like a Getty Lee or a Sting that's a superpower in my opinion I agree like that's just that's just uncanny yeah human beings should not be able to do that if you can do those separately you're good yeah exactly <laughs> that's right I was wondering if we could hit on uh just a, a real quick Paul you said this is the first album you bought with your own money yes Toph do you remember the first album you bought with your own money yeah, I was as soon as he said that, my mind immediately went to whether or not I could remember. Um, God, let me think about that. I'm gonna say I'm not 100 percent sure, but I am probably 90 percent sure. Uh, my first album was a cassette, and it was Phil Phil Collins' "No Jacket Required." Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, uh, early mid 80s, somewhere in there. Mine gets muddied because we were participating in those um, get 47 albums for a penny at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Columbia House. Yeah. And I probably started buying music on 45 singles, you know, rather than buying whole albums because those were, I think they were like $2.14 with tax and I could easily come up with two bucks. Yeah. You know, it was a lot harder to come up with enough money for a whole album. So I was, I don't think I could say which album did I buy first. I had the Blues Brothers soundtrack early on, but I don't know if I bought that with my own money. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I still ha- have that, I think. But I did go to the store and buy Jay Giles' band Centerfold on single, on 45 single. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I came home and whatever year that was, like 1983 or something. So I'm in early grade school, like maybe second grade. Definitely got it at the ball at, um, Maybe it was Camelot. You mentioned that earlier, Paul. 
and I brought it home and I put it on my, you know, I put the little, the little um, insert in the middle. So it'd go on the record player and I put the needle down and I'd heard the song. And, you know, at that age of whatever, eight, nine, like you don't know what the <laughs> song's about it. You just like the music. Right. And so I put the needle down and I crank it up and I'm listening to it. And all of a sudden, my door swings open, and it's my father, who, who I who I feared to the very core of my being. And I knew I knew I didn't know what I'd done wrong, but I knew instantly that I'd done something horribly wrong. And he didn't say anything to me; he just picked up the needle pretty abruptly, like, "Well, you're going to scratch that." But yeah. he didn't care because then what he did was is he picked he up the record, smashed. broke it in half, and left the room. No, wow. Yes. I guess he made his point. My dad often made his point. He, he never failed to make his point. I don't remember if he took the pieces with and threw them. I think I saw him throw them in the trash. So I think he took it with him and, and threw it in the garbage. And uh, I got very little explanation, but I, I didn't need one. I, I understood. And that was, the, that was the end of my record. Can I tell you my story? <laughs> sure. In the mid to late 80s, for some reason, I started listening to like a lot of hair metal bands like Poison and Motley Crue and all this stuff. And my yeah. my mother found all those cassette tapes, and she bagged them up and she threw them away, and I never got to thank her for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I should send her a message and say, hey, you know, you, you did me a solid there. Thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Paul. So now what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the final four of the GBI, our Facebook group. And the first two songs to make it into the GBI final four of this stage were... From group two, Jane Says by Jane's Addiction. And the second song was No Rain by Blind Melon out of group four. And I don't know about you guys, but No Rain made it much further than I thought it would. I did not expect it to go that far. But for me, I think I anytime I voted for it, it I mean, it was always up against... It was easy for me to vote against Jane's Addiction. You know what I mean? Like, I... I really remembered how much I do not care about Jane's addiction every time a song would come up. And I never understood the appeal of that band. I never think they're a terrible band. I just never got it. So uh, for me, No Rain was an easy pick over that. Plus, I still have a soft spot for the little Bumblebee girl from the video. So were you a a fan of Perry Farrell's follow-up project, Porno for Pyros? I was not. Uh, I just, yeah, <laughs> not not really in my wheelhouse. I don't know what it was about that band that just never, like Ben caught stealing. That's a fun song. Yeah, uh, but really, just none of it ever resonated with me. I, I don't hate it. I don't hate people who like it. I just it just never really clicked with me. Well, I guess I'm not that surprised because. The way voting goes in any type of poll in our group, it's always a little bit surprising. So so Jane says and No Rain made it into the final four. They did not make the championship matchup, however. The first of the two finalists is this song. This is Friday I'm in Love by The Cure. And... I guess I'm not that surprised that two songs from The Cure made it into the final four. (laughs) You're Paul sighing. Yeah. Uh, I'm not mad at it. It's okay. Friday I'm in Love is is a fine song, but it's the lesser of the two Cure songs. 
is I mean that's my opinion, but it is like the more probably the more popular, the more mainstream one. Would you say? Friday I'm in Love is probably the most mainstream Cure song. For people in the group that really like the Cure, particularly Leslie Morgan, I don't think this is anywhere near her favorite, you know, Cure song. I, I think most Cure fans probably like their darker, more goth stuff because that's really what the Cure is all about. Right. But this is more mainstream, and this was a really popular song. And let me explain a little more about it. This is the second single from the 1992 album, Wish. I never really got into the goth stuff, so I did kind of gravitate more to the to the lighter, you know, Cure stuff. Uh, and, and by the way, just as a reminder, these are not. this is not my Final Four. This is the Final Four of, of the Gravity Beard Interns Facebook group, as we've had polls for each matchup uh, throughout. But... This was a worldwide hit. It earned a Viewer's Choice Award at the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards. Robert Smith, the song's primary writer, described it as both a throw-your-hands-in-the-air, let's, let's-get-happy kind of record and a very naive, happy type of pop song. So, Which is exactly what you want when you're listening to The Cure. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it is. I think for I'm surprised this was so popular, or or why there. I'm surprised there wasn't a, a big fan revolt against songs like this because it was kind of a yank the wheel style from from what Cure fans expected. Right. I think that's interesting. But here, here's a a fun fact. During the writing process, Robert Smith became convinced that he had inadvertently stolen the chord progression from somewhere. And that, that made him paranoid, so he called everyone he could think of and played the song for them, asking if they'd heard it before, and none of them had, so he was convinced that the melody was his, and he continued. Hmm. That's uh, like Paul McCartney did with the, uh, was it yesterday? I don't remember. Or he wrote it, and he sat on it for a long time because he was convinced that he had stolen it from somebody. He wrote the music, and and it was, it, it just sounded too familiar to him. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, so same same kind of deal. Yeah. That yeah, makes sense. Unfortunately, nobody that he played that song for was like, "Hey, that's a Cure song? Are you sure that's a Cure song?" <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I agree. Well, the other song that made the championship matchup out of the Gravity Beard interns was Africa by Toto. Mhm. Paul, did you have a positioning statement that you wanted to make? I mean, it's just, it's another song that I've liked, you know, unironically since 1983 or whenever that song came out. That song never gets old. I was in a, back a couple years ago when Weezer covered that song and it was getting a little bit of attention. I was in a Facebook group and a person said, can we all admit now that Africa by Toto is just a terrible song and just everybody likes it because it's old and, you know, they like it ironically. And I thought that person was going to get killed. <laughs> I thought he was going to get drummed out of that group. But, uh, you know, I, Africa by Toto, Toto, excellent song. I like it too. And, and I think I always just pass it off as as just another catchy 80s song. It's one of those songs on the list that... It was it was a late addition to my music catalog, and, and I, I don't remember why I, I liked it recently enough to put it in. But in any case, it's the third single off of Toto 4, their fourth studio album, which when I read that, I was I kind of rolled my eyes because I was like, wait a second, you're just numbering. That's so Zeppelin of you. I feel like that was a Zeppelin ripoff, to, and I thought that was kind of lame. 
but but I got past it. It it was the last song they recorded, and it barely made the cut actually for the album. And after coming up with the initial idea for the lyrics for the song, keyboardist and I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's David Page Page. I don't know. But he surprised himself by completing the melody and the lyrics for the chorus in about 10 minutes, which I thought was really... It's always interesting when you come across that that kind of story about a song. Mm-hmm. Africa was Toto's only song to reach number one on the U.S. Billboard's Hot 100. It took the top spot... I thought this was really interesting. It took the top spot from Down Under by Minute Work, which was at the number one position for the previous three weeks. And so Toto was there for one week and then Down Under went back to being to being number one for one more week. After nine years, it sold 500,000 units and it was certified gold. It experienced a resurgence, just like you said, uh, Paul, in the mid-2010s uh, with that video by Weezer. And since then, it's been certified five times platinum, which means it went from 500,000 to 5 million copies. Wow. Holy cow. Weird. It's a great song, and and I don't remember who did it, but there's some sort of chorus or symphony or something that did a version of it that is really, really fantastic. And I think we've posted it in the group, but if, if listeners have not heard that, then go look up um, some sort of angel choir or something like that, but go look it up on YouTube and, and put, put on some headphones and listen to it, because it's really great. It's like an acapella version, right? I don't think it's acapella. I think, I think there's, they use instruments. I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm probably wrong. It'll probably, I, I should just forget that I said that. My hot take on Africa is I like the Weezer cover better than the original. I'm not even a big Weezer fan, but uh, I I just think there's more energy to it. I I appreciate it a little bit more, and it could have something to do with the time with the fact that I've heard Toto's Africa somewhere in the neighborhood of six trillion times in my <laughs> life. Um, and I just needed some new life breathed into it. Uh, it's, I think both of these are, are fine songs. I don't dislike either of them. Uh, but I think they are definitely the safest choices out of the entire bracket. They are, they are the most straight down the middle, time tested sort of popular songs, uh, out of this whole bracket. So it wasn't really surprising that it boiled down to these two. Yeah, it, that is a hot take to say that you like the Weezer cover featuring Weird Al, by the way, uh, better than the Maybe original. Maybe that's why I like it more, is the Weird Al, the Weird Al <laughs> element. He's the X Factor. I think for me, <laughs> I, I even though all of us grew up in the 80s and uh, just got a snoot full of music from that decade, which is where most of the music from the stage came from, I never liked synth. You know, when... when when Van Halen did it, I hated that. There's just so much synth in '80s music, and there that's, is. That's so. It's such fake music to me. You mean like when Jefferson Airplanes became slowly morphed into Starship? Yeah, the worst, <laughs> the worst thing, that, the most groundbreaking psychedelic, uh, trippy band of the '60s became the biggest sellout synth pop oh, garbage man. of the yes. '80s. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I mean. Thank you. That's a great example. I'm glad you referenced that because if listeners have not gone back and visited very, very early uh, Jefferson Airplane, do yourself a favor. Do it, but be in a safe place, man. It, <laughs> it'll take you places. <laughs> yeah, But it's great. It's really, really good material. Okay. So in any case, in the end, 
the intern's choice for their favorite song from stage two was Africa by Toto. Which basically drummed the cure somehow. I think I think they they doubled them up two to one. Whatever. It was two very popular bands from their eras, you know, two, yep. like you said, mainstream songs, one one over the other. Both are fine songs. This doesn't upset me, but that's who the Gravity Beard interns chose as their winner for stage two. Yep. I'm not mad about it. By the way, if you are on Twitter and you follow Africa by Totobot at Africa by Totobot, it will it will give you <laughs> It will give you a lyric from that song every three hours. Just an, an hour ago, they tweeted, as sure as Kilimanjaro rises like, like Olympus above the Serengeti, which is maybe the worst shoehorned awful lyric in the history of all music, but I still love that song. You know, what's funny is that I re- read this when I was doing my research. The guy that wrote the song had never been to Africa. Oh, yeah. No, well, of course. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> It's not like he went to Africa, was inspired, and then wrote this song, which is what you might think. He was just looking at like an atlas, and he's like, wait a minute, Kilimanjaro? <laughs> he's just thumbing through his, his Encyclopedia Britannica's. Yeah. Do you think someone challenged him to put Kilimanjaro in a song? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, we've come to the part of the episode where it is time for me to discuss my final four. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. This was really, really difficult. And I thought I was all set. I thought I'd pick my songs. I'd gone very carefully and very deliberately through each of the four brackets. I looked at my my final four. I was very satisfied. I was excited to talk about them. That was late last night. And then I don't, I don't know what, oh yeah, I do know what triggered it. I was researching Check It Out by John Mellencamp, and I won't go too deeply into this, but as I'm researching John Mellencamp, and I knew this, I just never, it just never hit me or mattered, but he's like a huge jerk. Oh, yeah. He's awful. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that a lot, uh, that he's he's pretty difficult. Yeah. Yeah, he's just an a-hole. And, and um, you know, he's he's been <laughs> married a few times, and so I looked at my other songs, in my final four. And before I knew it, I blew up the entire thing and I started from scratch. And only one song was left from from my entire trip through all of my brackets. Holy cow. And so this final four was brand new that I started that I started this morning. Damn you, Melon Camp! <laughs> yeah. So, so even so added to his list of ex-spouses, I am now on the list of people that he is he has wronged. <laughs> And, and I was really surprised. I surprised myself by that influencing me. But ultimately, that's what it caused me to do as I reevaluate, as it caused me to reevaluate my entire final four is pick songs that I have a very personal, as personal of a connection as I could. And so uh, that was my new kind of barometer as I went through the brackets and, and created my new. Final four. So each of these songs that we're going to discuss are are personal to me and and have a connection to a moment or experience or a time or whatever, which I think is a big part of music. That that is a a thing that music does to us is that it does take us to a time or it it represents an experience or something like that. So here we go. The first song in my final four 
came from group two, and it is this song right here. This is Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls. They are an American folk rock music duo from Atlanta, Georgia, consisting of Amy Ray and Emily Sailors. I've listened to them for over 30 years, maybe close to 40 years, but I've never researched them until now. They've got an interesting story. The two met in elementary school and began performing together as high school students. And they started performing with the name Indigo Girls as students that went to Emory University. And there's a lot more to that story. Like one went off to one school and one went off to another. They got homesick and they both ended up back in Georgia and going to Emory together. And uh, I don't remember which one, but one of the girls' fathers was a professor there at the time. And they used to play at a, a coffee shop or cafe or something every week, actually. And their, their first major label release was self-titled. It was called Indigo Girls. It reached number 22 on the album chart. It included a new version of their song, Land of Canaan, which also was a song in this tournament. In 1990, they won a Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Folk Album. They were also nominated for Best New Artist, but lost to Millie Vanilli. Oh, my goodness. Yep. All right. I know I brought up the XTC Grammy earlier and, and, and sung the praises of them winning a Grammy. But this really, like, if you look at the, the list of Grammy winners, it really shows you what the Grammys are worth. The three of us know the story, but for listeners that don't, Millie Vanilli was, was a pop duo, and later it was exposed that they were lip-syncing all of their stuff. And so they, they lost that Grammy. The Grammy that they, that they beat out the Indigo Girls for, they lost it because they were lip-syncing and they weren't actually performing their own material. <laughs> to me, that's that's really, really tragic. But in any case, I'm a huge fan of theirs. I saw them once in college play live. They're fantastic. They did have success in the 80s and 90s, but I, I don't think that the Indigo Girls get the recognition they deserve overall. And here's my turn for a hot take. I think they should be in the conversation with Dylan or Prine or James Taylor or anyone else. Rolling Stone magazine published a list of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. And they are not on that list. They're they are not considered by Rolling Stone, even in the top 100. And I think that's a huge oversight because, in my opinion, they are truly some of the best singer-songwriters of all time. Wow. I just thought that that was a travesty that they didn't make that list. When I learned how to play guitar in the summer of 1991, Closer to Find was one of the first songs I wanted to learn. And I still, to this day, enjoy playing it. That's a bold statement, man. But I don't think it's I don't think it's a wrong statement. The thing with the the Indigo Girls is they're almost um, they're playing folk music in a time when nobody gave a shit about folk music. Yeah, you know, like like there was the the sixties seventies, like you said, Dylan Prine, uh, Paul Simon, um, all of these guys who were singer songwriters who came up then. And if you were playing folk music in the nineties, two thousands, two thousand tens. Uh, you either got bumped up to being like a pop singer songwriter, or you became a very niche thing like, uh, like someone like Todd Snyder or, uh, 
uh, Lindsay Mack or somebody like that who just sort of like you're on a small indie label. You have a small indie fan base, someone like Bob Schneider out of Austin, you know, who who has this big following in Austin, Texas and and in kind of an underground sense around the country. But it's it's not a time for like mainstream folk music. So the fact that they were in the conversation at all in in the 90s is kind of surprising. One more point regarding the Rolling Stones list. So they're not on the list. What would you say if I told you that Taylor Swift is number 95? Oh. I would say that this is exactly why I don't read Rolling Stone anymore. <laughs> exactly. And I have it for, for 20 plus years. Oh my goodness. Isn't that ridiculous? By the way, I could read about 20 other names on that list. You would be shocked. That would just make my point even further. That's what happened when Rolling Stone went from being a counterculture magazine that published Hunter S. Thompson to being a magazine that had Britney Spears and, and Justin Bieber on the cover and, right. and were sort of hailing the new pop stars. That's right. Um, they, and that's just that's just an industry problem, really, that there's no good rock journalism uh, that's in the mainstream anymore. Yeah, I agree. So the next song in my final four was from Group 3, and it's this song right here. This is called The Nightingale Song by Toad the Wet Sprocket. Wow. Do you guys know who that is? Sure. I remember them, and I didn't know this song until the tournament, and this this song came very close to going, uh, well, not close to going. It For me, it actually went further than, than I thought it would. I really enjoyed this song. Yeah. Toad the Wet Sprocket is a four-man alt-rock band from Santa Barbara, California. You might be asking yourself, Toad the Wet Sprocket, that's an interesting name. Where did that come from? Do either of you know that story? I do not. I do not. It came from a two-minute Monty Python sketch called Rock Notes, in which a rock journalist delivers this nonsensical music news report. Rex Stardust, lead electric triangle with Toad the Wet Sprocket, has had to have an elbow removed following their recent successful worldwide tour of Finland. Flamboyant, ambidextrous Rex apparently fell off the back of a motorcycle. Fell off the back of a motorcyclist, most likely, quipped ace drummer Jumbo McClooney on hearing of the accident. So that's just the first 16 seconds of that bit. I love it. But they're mentioned right there at the beginning. Do you guys recognize that voice? That is the voice of Eric Idle. That's Eric Idle, yeah. Yeah. Here's the story behind it. As the band's first gig approached, they hadn't, so they were going to play for the first time, and they hadn't even picked a name yet. And the, the members, as a joke, said, why don't we call ourselves Toad the Wet Sprocket? And vocalist Glenn Phillips later called it a joke that went too far. <laughs> now, Eric Idle, who wrote and performed the sketch, shared this anecdote in 1999. I once wrote a sketch about rock musicians, and I was trying to think of a name that would be so silly that no one would ever use it or dream it could be ever used. <laughs> So I wrote the words, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and a few years later, I was driving along the freeway in LA, and a song comes on the radio, and the DJ said, that was by Toad the Wet Sprocket, and I nearly drove off the freeway. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's insane. <laughs> Isn't it? I think a very similar thing happened to the Foo Fighters. I think that was just supposed to be a, a throwaway band name and it just stuck. Yeah, I could believe that. Toad the Wet Sprocket finally achieved fame with their third album, Fear. The singles All I Want and Walk on the Ocean reached the top 20 of the Billboard Hot 100. Fear became the band's first platinum album. And here's where it becomes personal to me. That's about when I became aware of them. I went off to school in the fall of 92, so this is just a few months after that album. And I saw them at a concert touring this album at a place on campus called DeWare Fieldhouse. And that was the first real concert that I'd ever been to. And the Gin Blossoms opened up for them, which we did not care for at all. Uh, every song by them sounded the same. And and the lead singer was doing this really annoying thing where in between every song, he was soliciting Marlboro Bucks from the crowd. <laughs> oh, my <What>? God. <laughs> yeah, so there was a promotional by Marlboro Cigarettes back then where if you collected Marlboro Bucks off of packs oh, of I remember. Marlboro cig- Cigarettes, you could, I don't, you could buy stuff, I guess, redeem them somehow. You could buy camping gear that you were too winded to hike out. <laughs> right. <and use. laughs> so throughout their entire opening set, he was soliciting Marlboro Bucks from the crowd, like, Whatever. We thought it was super annoying. We were like, just get on with Toe the Wet Sprocket. And they were <laughs> terrific. And I went to that sh- that concert with a friend of mine named Don Chuck. And I was actually texting with him earlier today because I wanted to get his insight or any memories from that time. And we were discussing how we ran into some guys he knew from Clear Lake High School in Houston. And after the show, on our way out, we spotted the tour bus, which was still parked on site. And a bunch of people, including us, surrounded the bus. And the guys from Clear Lake were like, hey, we should start chanting this Italian soccer chant for whatever reason. And it became like like a reason to try to get the, the band to come out of the bus and interact with us. And it worked. So all but one member of the band came out. And I got my concert t-shirt autographed by almost the entire band, which I still have today. Cool. That is so cool. Yeah, it was a really cool personal experience with the band. And... Uh, unfortunately, DeWare Fieldhouse was torn down in 1997, which was, I guess that was the year I graduated, to make room for the Northwest End Zone addition to Kyle Field. So the the old, old gym, which originally built was built, I think, in 1925, 70 years later, after I'd seen that concert there. So basically, I saw, I saw Toad the Wet Sprocket on the floor of, of a 70-year-old gym at the time, huh. which has since been torn down. Yeah, it was wow. So kind of imagine the um the the video from Smells Like Teen Spirit. It was kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> gross. <laughs> it was kind of gross, but I didn't know cuz I was 18 and I was going to my first sure. cool concert. So Yeah, it didn't matter. Yeah. No, I didn't care at all. But in any case, regarding the Nightingale song specifically, I honestly don't have that much to say about it. There there's really no information about it out there. It was a deep cut on the Fear album. It's my favorite song on that album. I, I liked all the hits. They were fine, but this song hit me in a certain way. It's a very short song and has kind of a driving beat to it. And it it's kind of over before you know it. And I just kind of like it. I just really, really liked it. It ends very abruptly. Yeah, right? Like all It's like a two-minute song, and all of a sudden it's just over. You're like, hey, I want to hear four more minutes of that. It's almost disorienting when it ends. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, so there's the uh, the Nightingale song. It's a good song. So the third song in my final four was from Group Four, and it's this song right here. 
This is a song called There's No Other Way by Blur. Blur is an English alt-rock band from London. There's No Other Way came from their debut album, Leisure, which released in 1991. And that's when I heard them on a local alternative uh, station called The Edge. And a side note, a couple years ago, I did a three-part interview called Tales from the Edge with George Gamark, who actually helped launch that radio station. Blur is actually better known for song number two from their 1997 self-titled album. Yeah, There's No Other Way was, was a hit for them. It reached number eight in the, in the charts. But the album Leisure got mixed reviews. They had a bad experience with Andy Partridge from, the, from XTC, who produced the record. And lead singer Damon Album considered Leisure to be one of two bad records he made in his music career, which I thought was a little harsh because I kind of like it. <laughs> I don't care about any of that. I've always loved this song. The whole thing is a bit of a Britpop throwback, which I like. I couldn't find any information about the song at all. Nothing about the meaning or the story or where it came from. But the song seems to be telling a story about a kid who wants to go out and play but can't for some reason. And I didn't have a problem like that when I was younger, but I always kind of felt, you know, like left out. And so even the lyrics of the song resonated with me at the time. And I I have a very distinct memory of driving around in my 1987 yellow beige El Camino and playing this song on a cassette single, which I still have in a box today. Nice. Nice. Okay. And that brings us to the final song of my final four. And that is this song right here. Wow. Oh, man. This is Hitch a Ride by Boston. Ah, it's so good. A little bit of background on Boston. They are from Boston. Their most notable work was from 1976 to 1986. During that time, they made three albums. Their self-titled album, Don't Look Back, and Third Stage. Boston was founded by Tom Schultz. He played most of the instruments on their first album. Schultz started writing music in 1969 while attending MIT, where he finished with a graduate degree. And he is an absolute genius and a pioneer. And he's also solely responsible for Boston's signature sound. When you listen, you'll notice it's made up of complex, multi-track guitar harmonies and solos. So you get an almost violin-like sound without using any synthesizers. Another contributing factor is the use of handmade, high-tech equipment that Schultz invented himself to create a very specific sound that he was trying to achieve. Then, when he produced it, he combines deep, aggressive, comparatively short guitar riffs and almost ethereal, generally longer note vocal harmonies. They were also known for, speaking of vocals, of the vocals of Brad Delp, who, another hot take, I think is on par with Steve Perry, Freddie Mercury, and any other legends of the time. I agree with you. I totally agree with you on that. Another thing that makes Boston unique is that Schultz wanted to be sure that their live shows sounded just as good as their studio recordings, and they did. Mm -hmm. So just a quick summary. Tom Schultz wrote all the lyrics, played most of the instruments, did all the mixing, arrangements, engineering, and production, and of course, created their original signature sound using equipment that he invented. Dang. Wow. That's wild. Here's a little bit about the album. Hitcher Eye comes from Boston's self-titled debut album. 
It had immediate success with three singles becoming top 40 hits. All eight songs on this album receive regular airplay on classic rock radio today. This record took a mere three weeks to earn a gold record selling 500,000 copies. Three weeks. Jeez. It reached platinum, which is a million copies sold in three months. It was the fastest selling debut album for any American band. Today, it sits at 17 times platinum with 17 million copies sold in the US and 25 million sold worldwide. So this was a very popular record for a long, long time. And if you don't count greatest hits albums, it's the ninth best-selling album of all time in the United States. That's insane. Wow. I never would have pegged that. Holy cow. Even though it's, it's on a record with only eight songs, it's considered a bit of a deep cut. It's on side two of the album and number six on the track list. It has all the signature elements of a classic Boston song, very few lyrics. The song is four minutes and 12 seconds long, and the lyrics stop at a minute and 28. Then 30 seconds later, you get a, a one more chorus. Then at 2.27, it rolls into a guitar solo that lasts the rest of the song. It has a one minute and 45 second guitar solo. It's one of my favorite solos of all time. It features my very favorite music note of all time at the 3.15 mark. That's your favorite note of all time? That is my favorite music note of all time. I want to play that part just for you so that you understand. Oh, you have to. And I will point out when we get to that note. Okay, so he rolls out the lyrics into the solo. Coming up here in just five seconds. Right there. That's the one, huh? Yeah, that's my favorite note of all time. I'm just going to let it play out. There's 45 more seconds. Enjoy. Beautiful. And that is Hitch a Ride by Boston. Okay, so we got your favorite note of all time. We're slowly building towards your favorite song of all time. What are the <laughs> thing what are the other things we're gonna fill in and uh, like I feel like this is um when you're playing a video game and you beat the first boss, like, okay, now you move <laughs> on, you now you're leveling up. So yeah. <laughs> I can't even put into words 
how much I enjoy this song. I mean, I mean, I've obviously been listening to it for a long time. I discovered him a little bit late. I texted with another friend of mine, uh, with Brad Cranford, who's also a member of the Gravity Beard Interns. Sure. Because I was trying to figure out who had exposed me to Boston for the first time. And, and it had to have been him because he's got two older brothers, and they got him into classic rock. And I remember when we moved in that he introduced me to a bunch of this stuff, and Boston was among that. And I loved it immediately. And he reminded me that he he played that CD for me, and then I kept it in my car for a full year before giving it back to him. He was a year older than me, so he graduated before me. And, and before he moved out, he bought me a copy of it so he could get his back. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. And so that, that was, that was I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And I still, like, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed preparing for this conversation today because I've listened to this song just in preparation probably a dozen times. And I've listened to all different uh, um, environments in my house, in quiet rooms, in echoey rooms. I've played that solo like 10 times. Like it, it's an emotional experience for me. Every, like, even, like so many songs were like, I can't listen to that anymore because I'm, I've just heard it too many times. Uh-huh. This is impossible. I, it's impossible for me to hear this song too many times because I've, I've dug so deeply into, into Tom Schultz and just the, his craft and his expertise and the way he, he builds a song and the way he produces it and how intentional he is and just just his pure skill at, at all of those things, including playing the guitar. He's layering guitar solos on top of guitar solos, but it's not the same solo. Like sometimes he's playing the right. exact same thing. Other times he's harmonizing. He's harmonizing guitar solos. Man. Again, I'm just an amateur guitarist, but if you're a more accomplished musician, just to understand what he's doing to with these songs, which most people are just passing off as, oh, that was just an arena rock band from, from the 70s. It's just so much more than that. Oh, you know, I, a couple weeks ago when this tournament was happening and I saw there was three or four Boston songs in the in the brackets. And so I went down a, right. a Boston sort of a Boston rabbit hole. And I've always liked the band anyway, but started listening to the songs again. And I went on YouTube and I thought, I wonder if there's any live Boston on YouTube. There has to be. And there was a concert that they filmed in looked like some sort of football stadium or something uh you know back from the late late 70s early 80s they filmed it with a a potato <laughs> and i thought well how you know how good could this possibly be and a concert at a at a stadium filmed with a potato was sounded really good like surprisingly good like oh yeah i totally yeah. would have seen them live they're amazing well if you knew look we all know we the reason we're talking about music is because we love it. And so we've all seen a lot of live shows. And a lot of the time, we're really disappointed. I mean, even if you see like a band you like on Saturday Night Live, they sound like garbage compared yeah. to their album. And it's so difficult. Like, it's one thing to say, hey, as a band, we're just going to make sure we sound good at our concert. Like, every band should say that and an effort to do that. But to say, we want our live show. And by the way, they were playing arenas and stadiums, like you said, big open venues. Yeah. And to say that no matter what venue we play in, we want our live experience for our audience to have as just a high a sound quality as off the record. Mm-hmm. To even say that, especially in the late 70s, to even say that's a goal is absurd. That shouldn't be possible. I've changed my opinion on bands 
solely because of their live performances. Yeah. A band can be better than I think they are, or the band can be way worse than I think they are based solely on their live performances. And I will, if I hear a song that I like enough, I will go find a live performance and, and hear it and see how it holds up and see how the rest of their songs hold up at a, at a live performance. And I've just given up on some bands just based on that. Yeah, I understand. I saw John Prine in, in December and I've heard the song Sam Stone about a hundred trillion times. Uh, and he played a version of that that reframed that entire song for me. So yeah, I mean, live performance can change everything. As far as all this stuff about Boston, I didn't know that uh, this was like one guy who is essentially an engineer. And this really brings, it makes so much sense because the sound of Boston, uh, I think, is probably comparable to what I'm going to bring up right now. This reminds me a lot of Jeff Lynn and ELO. Of okay. How yeah. Jeff Lynn is this super producer who's also a great musician and songwriter and basically just engineered these amazing albums and these amazing songs. Uh, this is, this is one guy doing the same thing. Same kind of aesthetic, ELO, Boston. They both use spaceships on their covers. You know, yeah. they both have these, <laughs> these big, super produced live shows. They both had giant white guy afros in the seventies and early eighties. Like it's <laughs> like I'm comparing the two because their sound is even, I would say almost similar in that it's very, very produced, but it's not overproduced. I had no idea that Boston was that level uh, because I've always held like ELO is like the gold standard of that type of producer rock. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. That's really impressive. That's really, that puts them in a new, it kind of almost reframes the band for me. Yep. Yeah, they're really terrific. They really are. Yeah, that's a, that's a solid pick I didn't see coming. Yeah. Well, is there anything either of you guys want to say before we wrap things up? No, this is just, it's always so much fun to come on here and talk about music and, and especially, you know, being involved with the tournament and finding all this wonderful music that may have existed for decades that you had no idea about. Um, just that little journey of, of discovery has been really, really valuable to me and uh, hopefully to everybody else that's been kind of following along with the tournament um, in the interns group. Uh, I just think this has been really, really cool. The music that I've discovered from this has been just, I mean, you know, is life changing too strong of a word, but it, it might be, you know, like just music changes your life. And I found a bunch of new stuff. So it's great. I don't think that's too strong. I think that's that's what music does. And when you find new stuff, whenever whatever era it comes from, you know, uh, if it if it hits you in the right spot, you know, celebrate that. Sure. It's life changing. Well, for me, that's very gratifying to hear both of you say that, because like I've said in both episodes, that was one of my goals of this whole activity was to take people on a musical journey. And so if, if that's happening, uh, then that's super satisfying for me because I do love music and I believe what both of you said, music does change your life. It does. You know, it, it's, it's a very emotional thing and we, and we've talked about that. Okay. Well that completes our discussion of stage two and we've put two songs into the final four of the year end long mega tournament 
We'll do two more episodes like this one and then a final episode where we announce a champion and reveal my all-time favorite song. We'll also run a poll in our group to see which one of these winners everyone likes best. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. Phil, is there anything you'd like to plug or promote before we go? PhilRude.com. You can find me anywhere from there. Paul, what about yourself? You can listen to me on the Varmints podcast and also on Checking In with Chomo, both of which are on the Podfix network. We'll finish up with some credits. If you'd like to participate, hear some great music and vote in the tournament, come join us in our Facebook group. It's called the Gravity Beard Interns. You can also call us on the hotline if you like. That number is 321-465-2180. If you don't mind, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen to the show. Also tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to help grow an independent podcast like this one. Gravity Beard is a proud member of the Podfix Network. To find other great shows consistently creating platinum-level content, you can go right now to podfixnetwork.com or search at podfix on twitter you can also listen to our show on radio haver see the show notes for details thanks again to my friends phil and paul for appearing on today's episode i'm your host tof you've been listening to gravity beard it's what your ears will want to be listening to say goodbye fellas bye fellas goodbye gravity beard is a proud member of the podfix network